0: This series contains adult language and descriptions of graphic violence throughout. Listener discretion is advised. Cavalry Audio. Welcome to the Murder Chronicles. I'm your host, Carolyn Osorio. You're listening to Episode 7. Heartsick. In late 2019, I left my job as a reporter for a popular news radio station in Seattle. As a journalist, interviewing people is something I love to do. In a world that can often feel disconnected, sharing people's stories is something I've just felt called to do because I believe storytelling has a way of connecting us. And if I'm being honest, working for a news organization was a double-edged sword. There were many times I was tasked to approach someone for an interview that I didn't want to, say, a grieving family member or a survivor of a horrific crime. I'm not complaining. It's what I signed up for. But when I left the newsroom to host a true crime podcast, I was so excited to bring my investigative skills and storytelling chops to a place where I would be in charge of the cases that I covered and the people that I interviewed. There'd be no more shoving a microphone in anyone's face on the worst day of their lives. It's also the reason that whenever we can, we share with you the Murder Chronicles at CavalryMedia.com email address as a way for you to reach out to us if you want to share your story. Whether it's a victim's loved one saying, hey, I want to be heard, I want you to share what happened. Or a dogged investigator waving the white flag saying, Carolyn, help us bring attention to this case are the weightiest of all requests, which is when a victim's loved one asks for help, as is the case in the story we'll be chronicling today.
1: There's this notion out there that somehow over time you kind of get over things and you move on, and closure's the big word, which is just, I hate that word, because there's no closure. It doesn't get better, it gets harder.
0: Robin Peary's sister went missing in 1991. If you have a close relationship with a brother or a sister, then you'll know it's precious. The sibling relationship, when run its natural course, is the longest relationship you'll ever have in your life, longer than your kids, longer than your parents. Robin messaged me about her sister Susan on May 18th, 2022, after she'd listened to the Shadow Girls podcast. She wrote, Hi, Carolyn. I just wanted to let you know how much I enjoyed listening to the Shadow Girls and how much it resonated with me on a personal level. My older sister, Susan Libby Marable, went missing in Yakima, Washington, in April 1991. And my mother was contacted by the Green River Task Force at one point so that they could obtain a buccal swab from her in an effort to eliminate my sister from some of the remains they had by Detective Tom Jensen. Anyway... My sister was not a match to any of the remains and she has yet to be found 31 years later. Listening to the Shadow Girls podcast was so incredibly relatable, sadly. And with each victim you covered, I pictured my dear sister, and as sickening as it may sound, it made me feel a connection to her that I haven't had in decades. It's really hard to explain. Here Robin is sharing a little more of what she was feeling as she listened to the Shadow Girls podcast.
1: You know, the way you told their story and then, you know, went through so much about each victim. In my mind, while I know you're speaking about, you know, another victim, I'm picturing Susan in these scenarios where she's out there. There's so much desperation on their part to survive every day, to, you know, and then I'm thinking of her in those positions and the fear that they must have felt in those moments when they realized, I'm going to die.
0: As a little sister myself, there was no way I wasn't going to help bring awareness to Susan's case. But when Robin said she was going to send me Susan's murder book, I felt like in accepting this precious book from Robin that it was like signing a blood oath. Because Susan's murder book wasn't put together by law enforcement. It was a representation of Robin's own blood, sweat, and many, many tears in her 30-year quest to uncover the truth of her sister's case. She's fearless, obsessed, and Ahab. Her white whale is making people listen, making them care about her sister. Talk about what it felt like for you to send me Susan's murder book.
1: Terrifying, it's my connection to her. It's her, in a sense, the only sense I have really left besides her daughter. It's 20 years of work on my end. So it was scary sending that. It's so deeply personal. At the same time that I want people to know about her and for police to keep, keep on with her case, at the same time, it's like I want to guard it and hide it and protect her. ...from prying eyes and speculation from the general public. And so that's why it's a lot of complex emotions.
0: I'm not going to lie, this is going to be a tough case to solve. No one has ever been publicly identified as a person of interest... ...or suspect in Susan's disappearance and presumed murder. The detective working Susan's case, Detective Kevin Case... ...he's working it as a missing person suspected homicide... But in the Yakima Police Department system, Susan is actually listed as a missing person. They just lack the evidence to even definitively say that Susan was murdered. I would have loved to discuss the case with Detective Case, but unfortunately, he declined my interview request, which was a surprise. I mean, it's been thirty-one years.
1: What he told me was he said, "Well, I was really caught off guard, and then also he has to have permission." from higher-ups to do this kind of thing. And so, and then whatever he was doing in the moment that day, who knows, they have so much crime on a regular basis over there with the gangs. They're stretched so thin. So I think it's just a combination of all of that.
0: I followed up with multiple interview requests with said higher-ups at Yakima PD. And as of this recording, I haven't heard back. As you can hear, Robin is protective of her relationship with Detective Kays and Cortez. And I think you can understand why.
1: I wanted to be really sure that Detective Cortez and Detective Case get the appreciation and everything that they deserve because they have been the only two in 31 years who have been kind, considerate, passionate, empathetic. They care about Susan and have said so. They care about my family and have said so. You know, they have apologized for the negligence. All the previous detectives and their narrow scope For the fact that they dismissed susan because they just simply looked at her and made assumptions you know she's an addict oh she's been prostituting she probably just took off to party someone picked her up end of the story it's what happens to these people all the time they're the throwaways one detective told me that years ago they're throwaways so for those two detectives i mean they have meant everything to me because they have helped me not feel completely hopeless in this because we have found more things. So it's it's a matter of time, it really is. And I know I'm gonna find her, I will find her.
0: Remember what I said about Robin, Ahab? My job here is to help her tell her sister's story with the hope that someone out there might know something and help bring Susan home. But keep in mind, opinions expressed in this podcast are opinions, not facts. So listen carefully, And maybe you might know something. The package arrived on my doorstep on May 28th, 2022. It was a Saturday, and I knew instantly when I picked up the box, it wasn't an Amazon delivery. It would have nothing to do with convenience or pleasure or fun. I sliced through the box tape, separated a blanket of bubble wrap, and nestled inside was a three-ring purple plastic binder. On the front cover, it looked like it was Susan Marable's senior photo. She graduated high school in the 1970s, and her look reflected the time. Long brown hair parted down the center, a huge smile that matched Robin's description of her sister, warm, sweet, and loving. A few years ago, Robin had made three copies of Susan's murder book that contained a collection of the police reports she'd requested from different agencies— records that she'd inherited from her mother, and her own insights and theories on the case. In the summer of 2020, Robin FedEx two of the three murder books to the Yakima Police Department, and she kept the other copy for herself. It is this copy that Robin had entrusted with me over the last four months. The original detectives who worked Susan's disappearance have long since retired. And as Robin stated earlier, She wants to make it very clear that she's appreciative of the work being done on her sister's case right now, but her acrimony toward the investigation in those early years following Susan's disappearance is palpable. That vitriol is reflected at the beginning of Susan's murder book. Here's a taste. You are well aware of my anger, hurt, and outrage at how Susan's case has been treated from the very beginning, and it's this one statement. Quote, she was last seen behind the sports center getting into a pickup. That has halted her case for 28 of these 29 years. No thanks to the narrow-minded scope of initial investigators. From that, my family will never recover. That one sentence that has never been corroborated, has no witness statements to back it up, none. Which has left my family in a state of perpetual grief to this day. This must be made right. I hope you will spend time looking through these. I have put my entire heart into this case and a lot of tears. We will never recover from the loss of our dear Susan, never. But I refuse to let her be forgotten, and I refuse to sit idle and do nothing while her remains lay out there somewhere. Just to dial it in real tight from the get-go, Robin believes that an uncorroborated witness statement is to blame for a deeply flawed investigation into her sister's disappearance.
1: I believed it for a while because I didn't know any better, but it took me seven years to work through that and figure out, wait a minute, that's not even true. That's not true.
0: We'll get into the details of that one sentence later. Trust me, it's a big deal. But first, I want you to get to know Susan and her family. Robin and Susan's parents moved from Seattle to Aberdeen, Washington in 1971. Aberdeen is a city on the Olympic Peninsula near the Pacific Coast. Robin's dad was a high school teacher. Her mother, Dolores, was a stay-at-home mom. They had a full house, six kids. At the time of the move, Susan was 15 and Robin was four.
1: We were so regular, so normal. Typical 70s, mom and dad. Dad worked as the teacher, and
0: mom stayed at home. Robin says looking back, if anything was extraordinary about her large family, it was her special bond with her sister, Susan.
1: I just really had such a bond with her. I did with all of my siblings, but with her, it was just markedly different because she was such a warm person. She wasn't the prankster sibling who you know would put ice cubes in my diaper when I was little or you know cut my fingernails to sharp points like one of my other sisters did she didn't do any of those things she was the real sweet one who I would go to and knew that with her I'm completely safe from everything and um she mothered me in a lot of ways and so she would walk with my friends and I all the way up to the grade school and then I would stand out there and she would kneel down and give me a kiss and say, bye, honey, I love you, and have a good day. And I would tell her, okay, please be careful or something like that. I'm going to stand here and watch you walk. Because I thought somehow
0: I was going to protect her while she walked on to the high school. Growing up, Susan had always been a nurturer. You know, the whole nurse a broken bird's wing or coax a stray kitty to trust her sweet call and gentle outstretched hand. So it was no surprise to anyone when Susan went to nursing school.
1: She had an MG, a little forest green MG with a black top. And then she already had her own cute little apartment. But she would come to the house all the time and she would let me go with her, you know, to the store or whatever. And so riding around with her was just, I don't know, I felt so special.
0: After Susan graduated, she landed her dream job as a nurse in the OB department, helping care for moms and babies. It was during this time that she began dating a doctor.
1: He seemed like a really nice guy. He um, was just a good general practitioner as far as I can remember. But there was some um, dabbling in some some kind of prescription medications at that point. That was And that was a new thing for her. She was introduced to that by him. How did you find that out? She told us. Oh, what did she say? Um, well, there had been an incident apparently, when she was staying with him one night when he had given her too much of something and and she wasn't able to leave his house. I don't know if in that she felt threatened in some way. She just was too medicated, and it scared her. They broke up not long after that.
0: By 1983, little sis Robin was a sophomore in high school. That's when Susan started dating a new guy, but Robin wasn't too happy about it.
1: Just remember that I made him really uncomfortable because... I have a tendency to kind of live inside my own head. I'm a very quiet person by nature. And so I just kind of stood there and didn't say anything to him. And I can still remember vividly to this day him saying, you know, do you want to sit down or something? You're making me really nervous. And I kind of thought, "Hmm, okay, I wasn't super impressed.
0: Susan was head over heels and moved in with her boyfriend. How could she possibly know that this new relationship would change the trajectory of her life in tragic ways? First, their home was raided by the police for selling weed. I didn't realize at the
1: time that he was a marijuana dealer on a large scale. I don't know for certain if Susan knew. I would imagine at some point she probably did, but it was about 1984 when he got busted one morning and she was there, of course, because she was living there. And very early in the morning, they raided the house, dragged them out in their pajamas. It was all over the front page of the paper. You know, in this small town, she lost her her career as a nurse, which just devastated her. Friends turned on her. It really hurt her deeply, even within a couple years after when she would tell. She said, oh, I saw someone I worked with at the hospital, and she wouldn't even talk to me. And she would just start crying because she just felt those things so deeply.
0: Susan lost her job, her reputation, and she had to do time for the marijuana bust. And when she was released from jail, she moved back into the family home in Aberdeen. Despite everything that she'd lost, she still wanted to make it work with her now fiance. And a short time after his release from jail, she was still living at home, but they were making plans to start a new life together. It was a blazing hot August day in 1985 when the couple had spent a fun day at the county fair.
1: They decided to go up to the Grace Harbor County Fair one evening. So they went up there and they came back and he brought her by our house so she could get her little car and she was going to follow him to his house and they were going to make dinner because she was not they were not living together anymore they were just kind of working on their relationship. So he left before her and and then she left a few minutes later and I remember I was sitting out on our back steps and I heard sirens and then probably 25 minutes later we had a phone call from the hospital someone they were calling us to report a fatality. My mom took me with her up to the hospital, and we found out that he had hit the back of a piggybacked log truck and killed him instantly. She was completely devastated. In fact, she was laying on the floor. And I, I sat down on a little sofa in there, I can still remember, and she got up off the floor and was just on her knees and just put her head in my lap and was just absolutely broken.
0: Susan never recovered from her fiance's death. During this extremely vulnerable state, she was offered heroin. It didn't take long before she was in the grips of an all-consuming addiction. She
1: started changing some. She met her daughter's father and had her daughter in 1987. At some point, because of her, her drug use led her into some theft. Nothing major. Just, and it typically isn't. Mm Because people steal to support a drug habit. So she ended up in jail briefly, not for very long, a few months. And that's all it took for the state to say, you know, we're taking your daughter. And she felt so much shame that she just left town. It was several months before we heard from her and I found out that she was in Yakima.
0: Yakima is a four hour drive from Aberdeen. It's the second largest county in Washington state with 2.75 million acres. Agriculture is the staple of the economy. The Yakima Indian Reservation is south of the city, with land covering 1.2 million acres.
2: This is Tammy Ayer, and I'm the uh, features editor at the Yakima Herald Republic in Yakima, Washington.
0: Tammy explains that the land encompasses a lot of territory that multiple law enforcement agencies cover.
2: It's complicated. And then the law enforcement response is complicated because of the jurisdictional issues. And back in the day and potentially even now, some cases fall through the cracks because of concerns about who has jurisdiction in this case. And uh, if you look at the federal prosecution rate for some of these cases, um, it's fairly
0: low. Tammy has reported extensively on missing and murdered indigenous women in Yakima, She says that jurisdictional issues have often hindered prosecution of those committing violence against Native Americans in Yakima, and that also appears to be an issue in Susan's case, too. More after a word from our sponsors. Jeanette Vargas and Susan were friends. They looked out for each other.
3: A lot of Native women were disappearing. You know, they'd be there for a while and then all of a sudden, poof, they'd be gone. And you would just think, oh, they got, they went home or they got clean. You know, that's what you thought about people. And that was what I was hoping about Susan when she left. My first thought was that they put her in, would you like, custody because well, of everything that was happening with her and that trial and
0: everything. Oh, protective custody.
3: Yeah, I thought they just put her in protective custody.
0: We'll get into why Jeanette believed that Susan had been placed into witness protection. And as for the missing indigenous women that Jeanette says just disappeared on those nights that she and Susan were on the streets, in her heart of hearts, she knew they hadn't just moved away. For generations, indigenous women and girls in the area have gone missing and have been murdered. According to the Urban Indian Health Institute, indigenous women face rates of violence up to 10 times higher than the national average. Back in the 80s and 90s, many people believed that there was more than one serial killer operating in Yakima. Tammy Ayers explains.
2: We had a whole string of cases through uh, the 1980s and into the 90s where it's believed that there is uh, one person who may be responsible for several of those cases. You won't get that officially from anyone, but in talking with investigators, I know who that person was. He's no longer living, um, and I, I'm not sure how much I want to share about that.
0: Jeanette says she's grateful to be alive today because life on the streets was rough. And despite it all, she remembers Susan taking care of her when she needed it the most.
3: One time we were downtown, and I remember I was so cold and um, pregnant. She took care of me, like, a mom, gave me her jacket. And I was like, well, what are you going to do? And she said, it's okay. I got got a lot of stuff. I'll be okay. Like, okay. And she gave me her jacket.
0: Jeanette says it breaks her heart when she thinks about how utterly alone she remembers Susan being.
3: When you're out there and um, you're alone, because I felt like she was always a loner, always by her, you know, on her own.
0: Life on the streets was so dangerous for women and young girls. Jeanette says she survived a serial killer and a serial rapist who was a cop. Been a lot that's been said about she could have been a victim of the serial killer and that there's a lot of serial killers going around in Yakima in the 80s and 90s. From your perspective, how would you describe that time? At
3: that time, it was always scary. You didn't know. No, I ended up um, coming in contact with one serial killer that I got away from and two other, the girls that I knew were killed by him and also raped by a police officer that is a serial rapist that they finally caught,
0: Fletcher. He was the serial killer or he was the con-
3: The police officer was um, Officer Padilla.
0: How did you get away from the serial killer?
3: I ended up hitting him with a rock that was underneath my head.
0: John Bill Fletcher Jr. killed two Native women, Teresa Branscombe and Bertha Cantu. They were both found stabbed to death in 1987. Jeanette would go on to testify against Ramon Padilla, a former state prison guard who was convicted in 1994 of extortion with sexual motivation in the rape of four prostituted women in Yakima. According to Tammy Ayers' reporting in the Yakima Herald Republic under the headline, quote, Hunting Ground. In the 1980s and early 90s, sexual predators terrorized the Yakima Valley. Tammy details men convicted of raping and murdering women in Yakima, but also still unidentified predators who could be responsible for cases yet unsolved during the time period Susan went missing. Tammy shares her frustration at what feels like the lack of follow-through on cold cases.
2: You know, we've talked about the fact that unfortunately Yakima and the Yakima Valley are kind of going through uh, quite a bit of uh, gang-related issues right now. Drive-by shootings, homicides, all related to gangs, and that's a bigger story, and I won't get into that. But the Yakima Police Department has its hands full there. But you know what? This is a story that's everywhere. Uh, Police departments are understaffed, overwhelmed, and tackling cold cases takes real focus and time and effort. And it's just frustrating that it's not happening the way it should, I guess, I'm not sure.
0: And for this reason, Tammy has been committed to reporting on issues related to missing and murdered indigenous women and helping to keep awareness alive in cold cases, like Susan's.
2: My involvement with Robin and with her sister Susan Maribel's case was because of an ad that uh, Robin ran in our paper. I'm one of those old-fashioned reporters who reads the classified ads. I read the obituaries because there are fairly often stories in there. And she had run an ad talking about her sister. It had some details about her, the fact that she was missing, had a little photo um, that I've seen many times. And if I recall correctly, she ran it around the time that she went missing every year. And so i called her and I started asking her questions about her sister and it went from there and she's just been so helpful and forthcoming about this and I just her sister's case again is along the lines of these cases of women who are struggling with various issues due to uh, fairly often circumstances beyond their control. And she was over here and was caught up in that. And I gotta say, Robin has shared everything. And you know, she's very frank about her case, about her sister's situation. But again, the background to that just goes to show that there should be no judgment. There shouldn't be no weighing of cases. One person is not more important than the other person. So that's how it started with the classified ad.
0: During this time, Susan was vulnerable and desperate, away from the love and support of her family as she battled an addiction that consumed her life.
1: What she was doing primarily to survive was going to some of those seedier motels and offering to clean rooms so that she would have a room to sleep in so she could bathe and do those things and get money to get food. When that wasn't available to her, she went to the street, you know, did what she needed to do. So that's when she got picked up by this guy, John Robinson, on June 10th, 1990.
0: At around 2 a.m., Susan stood in the Sports Center parking lot. It was a well-known place in Yakima for sex buyers to cruise. A man pulled up in a black car. Susan didn't know who he was at the time, but later, he would be identified as John Robinson. According to a Yakima County Sheriff's Office police report in Susan's murder book, quote, The victim... Susan stated she agreed to go with the suspect to perform an act of prostitution and that the suspect produced a wallet full of money prior to their departure, saying that he'd been looking for her all night. The man we now know as John Robinson drove to a secluded spot near the Yakima River and parked. Susan was just tiny at 5'2 and only 98 pounds, whereas John Robinson was 6'4 and 200 pounds. That's another thing about Susan's murder book that Robin has carefully saved a handwritten note from Susan where she describes her attacker, saying, Suspect's voice changed, almost demonistic in depth. Face and eyes changed. He smoked Marlboro cigs. He taped me after he put on the leather vest.
1: Tied up her wrists and her ankles, forced her to give immoral sex raped her, strangled her many times, almost to the point of losing consciousness. Disgusting things. And that was how her night went. From the report, it sounds like it was at least six hours of just
0: hell. At daybreak, Robinson was worried that they'd be seen parked in that secluded spot. So with Susan's hands and feet still duct taped, he drove to an off-the-grid gas station, threatening Susan to be quiet as he exited the vehicle. We can only imagine what was going on in Susan's mind as she scanned the horizon. Couldn't believe her eyes when she saw two men on the side of the road. Their vehicle had gotten stuck, and they were working to push it free.
1: She managed with her her wrist tape to pull the door handle and just throw herself out on the ground and roll. And while she's rolling, she's yelling for help, help, help. And so they came over and got her, and the guy took off.
0: These good Samaritans rushed Susan to the Yakima Sheriff's office where she was able to describe her attacker as balding with a scabby beard and big arms. He wore blue jeans, a white muscle shirt, and a black vest. She described his black car as having a torn interior ceiling with long door locks and said it was a pigsty. Deputies went back to the gas station and they found the duct tape that had been used to bind Susan. Susan? It didn't take long for the Yakima County Sheriff's Office to laser in on John Robinson, who had priors for rape and kidnapping. Susan was able to pick Robinson from a photo lineup. And I want to pause here to note how Susan was described in the police report under the heading of Victim's Physical and Emotional Condition. Quote, Physical condition was poor. The victim is a drug addict who kept nodding out during interview, stating that she was very tired. And her emotional conditions was as follows. Extremely upset, frightened, almost in shock. Victim is a known prostitute who had been working the sports center parking lot prior to the offense. Of course, Susan was exhausted after being held hostage for hours, where she'd been sexually assaulted, strangled, and revived multiple times. Ultimately, Susan would testify against John Robinson for the rape and kidnapping despite her intense feelings of shame and guilt over losing custody of her daughter and how her life felt like it was spiraling out of control.
3: It's like when things like that would happen to you, it would be like, kind of like you deserved it. You weren't out there doing what you were doing. It wouldn't happen to you.
0: You felt that yourself. Yeah. What I understand, you're helping other <laughs> girls and women who are prostituted people. You're trying to help them. Yeah. Because it's a, it's a really strong feeling of shame.
3: It
0: is. How powerful it is, and you feel like oh my it, it, gosh, when these horrible. It's very
3: powerful. It's so powerful that it takes over your whole life.
0: Robin would see the fallout of the trauma, but she had no idea what had happened to her sister.
1: She went to trial with it, which was really brave on her part. And she never told us because I think she felt shame. And the jurors initially, you know, there's always doubt with people that a prostitute can't be raped. And that is absolutely false. There's a difference between consensual sex and rape. So just because she went with him
0: did not mean she wasn't raped. Well, yeah, and the fact that he held her prisoner and choked her and struck her. Yeah, so he was kidnap and rape. Yeah, I mean, I was actually kind of surprised as I was reading the report and the officer kind of described her as like all over the place or something like that. And like the woman was just almost killed and completely brutalized. Yeah. What do yeah. you think she would be like? I mean, anybody would be like that. It doesn't matter if you were somebody in prostitution who yeah. drugs, or if you're a cheerleader who, yeah. you know, got into the wrong place at the wrong time. You're traumatized. You just. I don't know if you caught that, what Robin was saying in the beginning of that cut, so I'm going to play it again because it's incredibly significant to the case.
1: And she never told us. We didn't know this even happened.
0: Susan's shame was so strong, she never told her family about being kidnapped and sexually assaulted, that she'd barely escaped with her life when she came for that Easter visit just weeks before she would ultimately disappear, or that despite that shame and fear, she testified against John Robinson. That's how strong the shame was. And yet she still had the courage to come forward and testify in open court. Because of Susan, a very dangerous man was taken off the streets.
1: She recognized this guy is not just some John. This is a different animal altogether. This man is dangerous. And, you know, the only reason she's alive is because she got away. There would have been many other victims had she not. And she knew that. That's one thing about Susan that it seemed like no matter how much her life was spiraling out of control, she retained such a part of her core. So she knew in that moment, this man is dangerous. I have a responsibility to report him or he's going to kill other women.
0: John Robinson was sentenced to eight years in prison and then 12 months in community placement supervision upon his release. After receiving his sentence... Robinson didn't go quietly. He actually threatened to kill Susan in open court.
1: He threatened to find her and break every bone in her face, kill her, and I believe kill members of our our family.
0: And Susan's friend Jeanette says that John Robinson's threats against Susan, in her opinion, weren't just idle.
3: Because those people were, were... Bad. I mean, really bad people you didn't want to be tied up with.
0: You're talking about the John Robinson? Yes. This is a really important insight that will blow your mind. But first, we need to recap the events leading up to Susan's disappearance. So John Robinson was convicted in the June 1990 kidnapping and rape of Susan Marrable. He was sentenced in the spring of 1991, just a few weeks after the sentencing, where Robinson threatens to kill Susan. She goes back to Aberdeen over that Easter weekend to visit her family and her four-year-old daughter. This would be late March 1991. So without context, Susan's family couldn't comprehend her erratic behavior over that long Easter visit. And they didn't understand Susan's relationship with a man we're going to call Steve throughout this podcast. That's when they found out that Susan had been living with Steve in his van in Yakima.
1: I don't know how they met. I know obviously where they met somewhere in Yakima. Um, I'm assuming probably when she was out on an evening, um, and she had been hanging around him, I think, for oh, a month or so before he brought her to Aberdeen for that last visit, and um, he would not come in the house. She came in, and she said, she kind of giggled. She said, well, he's a little weird, you know, because as sisters, you know, we all knew that I know she's like, I'm going to bring this guy in, and my sisters are going to be like, holy crap, you know, <laughs> this guy is not even in her league, even in this state of her life. He's not in her league. Eventually, he came in. So much wrong, you could feel it. I don't know how to explain it. It just all felt wrong. Something was wrong. And I couldn't pinpoint any of it at the time other than Susan's meltdowns were what really struck me the most because it just wasn't her normal behavior, even at the height of her using.
0: Now, when she was sleeping over, would he sleep in
1: the van? No, he made her sleep in the van with him. He wouldn't let her sleep in the house with us.
0: Over that holiday weekend, the family kept trying to convince Susan to stay in Aberdeen. They knew that she wanted to get clean. But Steve clearly had some kind of powerful hold on Susan.
1: Completely creepy. He didn't speak a single word. Not at all. And I can remember sitting and looking at him. And like I told you about Susan's one boyfriend who died, how I I have a tendency to kind of climb inside my own head and really size a person up and assess them and pick up vibes. and So I sat there, and and I'm just looking at him. And I can still remember to this day the smell of him. And maybe it was only, maybe it wasn't even a physical smell, more than, I I honestly think it was his presence. Because it was a funk, sour odor that absolutely creeped me out.
0: Robin describes her one final precious moment with her sister, because it's haunted her for over 30 years. She stepped
1: out on the porch and turned around and looked at me, and we just made that connection, I don't know, 10 seconds, where we didn't say anything, we just looked at each other. And I just said, you know, please don't go, I love you. And she said, I love you too, honey, I have to go. You know, so she left. And um, yeah, I just think now that I'm 55, I think, God, Had I known a quarter of what I know now, I would have just said, you know what, you're not leaving.
0: It's a cruel thought. But what if Susan had confided in Robin the truth about what she'd been through in that moment of sisterly love? What if? But she didn't. On April 25th, three weeks after Susan's Easter visit to Aberdeen, Dolores received a harrowing call from Steve. She was at work, and he claimed that he hadn't seen Susan for two days. He said that Susan had left his park van at 9.30 the night of April 23rd, telling him that she was going to walk to the convenience store, three blocks away. When she didn't return, Steve said he went looking for Susan, and that one woman on the street told him that she'd heard Susan had last been seen getting into a pickup truck at the sports center. Remember the place where Susan had been picked up by John Robinson months before? Dolores raced to Yakima the next day and filed a missing persons report on Susan. She just started walking the
1: streets, going to places she should not have gone, <laughs> like the Blue Banjo Tavern. And anybody who lives in Yakima and was there at that time would know that you, don't, you did not go there. You did not go there unless you were a very certain type of person. It was extremely dangerous. She bought people beers and at, started asking questions.
0: And Jeanette recalls that police came to speak with her, and they talked to a lot of people on the streets, but not for long.
3: And they talked to them, and um, it was—that was it.
0: So how and many years— I never heard
3: anything after that.
0: How many years later did the police come—this was Yakima PD, right? Yes,
3: yes. How,
0: how many years later did they come and talk to you?
3: Um, Thirty.
0: <laughs> so it was recent. Yeah, because and this is because of Robin. And
3: right? that's of her sister. Yeah.
0: And they literally talked to you for like two minutes.
3: No, after no, not this time. I'm talking about la- the very first time it even happened. When it happened, after it happened, i just she disappeared.
0: Okay, so they came and talked to you after she disappeared.
3: Yes, they were talking to everybody on the street.
0: Really? Okay, because according to the police report, it didn't seem like they really talked to anybody. So you're saying that they did talk to people.
3: Yes, they did. Yes. Yeah. But it, but like I said, it was not really like anything. It was like, have you seen her?
0: And did you tell them the story about how she was terrified and that she said they were no. out to get her? No. Why?
3: I was scared. I didn't want to be involved with all that stuff. The guy that, you know, um I didn't know if it was the guy that had tortured her and all that. Because those people were were bad. I mean, really bad people you didn't want to be tied up with.
0: You're talking about John Robinson? Yes. Why? Yes. Well, like, give us a... Family dis- and... Okay, so his family, too. Give us, for people who don't yes. know, including me, describe why they had this reputation of being, you don't want to mess with them.
3: Yeah, because they would take you out and take you out, you know? They would rape you, or they would kidnap you, or what we heard in the streets, they would just take you out, and no one would see you again.
0: This was John Robin- the Robinson family, like his brother?
3: Yes. Mm-hmm. Everybody would say, don't, don't even mess with them. That's what the word on the street was. It's like, you know, they're crazy, you know. Like I said, they'll take you out, or, you know, all this stuff that was going on.
0: I mean, this adds such a—I'm so appreciative of you talking to me because when he—when John Robinson made that threat in open court against Mm -hmm. Susan, I mean, you're you're making me feel like this is even scarier than than what it was when I read about it. How brave was she to come forward? Super brave. Super brave. Over the next three months, Dolores devoted her life— to trying to find her daughter. You know, the whole shoe-leather detective work we usually assign to police? That was Dolores. She was relentless, then, and would continue to investigate her daughter's disappearance until the day she died in 2012. More murder chronicles after the break. After her mother's passing, Robin took over the search to find Susan. She dug in. Hard. And that's when she realized, as she looked through police reports and the tips that her mom had carefully preserved, that according to Robin, one alleged hearsay comment by a witness in Susan's missing persons report had been the death knell in her sister's disappearance investigation that someone had last seen Susan getting into a pickup truck the night that she disappeared. But Robin doesn't believe that it was true.
1: I believed it for a while because I didn't know any better, but it took me seven years to work through that and figure out, wait a minute, that's not even true. That's not true. I don't know if they just decided this sounds good, let's just put this and we'll put it in our file. But they didn't go to the sports center and talk to anybody there. They didn't try to corroborate that in any way.
0: This fact wasn't realized until after Dolores passed away in 2012. You know, what do you want me to do? Do you want me to just keep pursuing this or do you want
1: me to let it go? I said, you're her mother. Ultimately, it's up to you. You're her mother. I'm her sister. But I said, if you want me to drop it, I will, because she's your daughter. She said, no, I want you to keep pursuing it, because I know you'll follow through.
0: Over a decade after Susan vanished without a trace, what Robin has uncovered over the years has changed everything they thought that they knew. It's devastating when you think about it. Dolores finds out that her daughter is missing. She drops everything, drives to Yakima, files a missing persons report, passes out flyers, then goes to the Yakima Police Department and wants to share all that she's learned and work together to find her daughter and essentially gets the door slammed in her face. They wouldn't
1: accept it. They said, we don't want it. You don't know what you're doing. And she was furious, devastated, dumbfounded. And she said, well, I'm doing what
0: you're not And And you think that they would know Susan and want to, like, she helped them solve a case.
1: Well, you know what I found out um, only a few years ago was the Yakima Police Department didn't even know about that case because the sheriff's department handled it.
0: Let's unpack this. okay? you have the Yakima County Sheriff's Office. They handled the John Robinson kidnapping and sexual assault of Susan Marrable 10 months before she went missing. Then you have the neighboring Yakima City Police Department. They're handling Susan's missing persons case. You have a mom, Dolores, in town for three months searching for her daughter, following up with the police on a regular basis. And yet the Yakima police don't ever reach out to the Yakima County Sheriff's Office to see if they have any information about this missing person. According to Robin, the Yakima Police Department never knew that their missing person, Susan Marable, had recently testified against a man who had made threats in open court about killing her, which would have been a huge deal, Jeanette says, because in her opinion, the family had a reputation. Remember earlier in the episode, when Susan first disappeared, Jeanette thought she'd been placed in a witness protection program for her safety. She believed it was because she was in danger after testifying against John Robinson. John Robinson's connection to Susan wouldn't be known to Yakima police until Robin found out herself in 2013.
1: I was in disbelief. I said, are you kidding me? Wouldn't when you have a missing person case filed... With you, you don't check with either a neighboring county or even your own sheriff and say, hey, this lady's missing. She's known to us. Do you, you, know, do you know anything about this? But they didn't communicate with them. So they didn't even know what happened to Susan 10 months prior. Wow. I was blown away. And what did they say when you told them? They asked me how I found out. I said, uh, I picked up the phone and I made phone calls. I called the sheriff. I wanted to know what the sheriff knew about my sister.
0: So was that when you found out about what had happened to her?
1: Yeah, that's when how, I found the full story. How did, many years later? Probably just been like since 2013. So when I did, I was just blown away, but it also helped me put together all the other pieces.
0: So just to clarify, Jeanette says shortly after Susan's mom filed the missing persons report, police did come to talk to her in 1991, but she says she didn't say anything about Susan's fears. 30 years later, after Robin's pestering and refusal to give up, police went back to Jeanette and interviewed her again. This time, she told them about Susan's terror and identified the van outside her window that day and also identified Steve in a photo lineup as the person she saw waiting for Susan. Robin had always been pushing for investigators to formally interview Steve and the information that Jeanette provided pushed her quest into overdrive. It would take years for Robin to organize all of her mother's scraps of paper and interview notes from the people that she'd spoken to over the years and try to make sense of it all. And now that she had... For a long time, she was experiencing the same kind of stonewalling that her mom had endured. I've just been pushing and pushing and pushing
1: and pushing and calling these guys. Some of these detectives did not want to talk to me at all. Their attitude has always been more like, you know, we should just be thankful that they're doing anything at all. And that's when I would get pissed off because I I just said you know what are you guys doing right now what's the update well no we don't have anything and I'd say well you know why why haven't you talked to some have you talked to some of these people that are in her report uh, well no
0: and what do you think they should have done knowing what you know now
1: immediately they should have talked to Steve because they would have figured out pretty quickly by talking to anybody on the street that that's who she was with they should have immediately talked to him and gotten a statement because as far as we know he's the last one that was ever with her and he puts himself with her and keep an eye on him because in whatever strange way their friendship was it would still be considered an intimate partner relationship and that is where domestic violence and things happen all the time they should have come to us and interviewed family for any information we had. And then they should have gone to places known, you know, where the girls would hang out and talked to any of those people. I mean, that alone, they could have garnered so much information, but they didn't do any of that.
0: Robin noted in Susan's missing persons report that, quote, Stephen checked on the street. One girl told him about seeing her get into a pickup. No description of truck or driver, end quote. But this was never corroborated. This was information that Dolores, Susan's mother, had told police based on what Steve had told her. But according to Robin, they never followed the breadcrumb back to Steve and actually confirmed he said it and the circumstances behind what he knew about Susan's disappearance. A Yakima City police report dated May 14, 1991, a few weeks after Susan's disappearance. A woman named Christy came to the Yakima Police Department and claimed that a bartender at the Blue Banjo named Marge told her she'd last seen Susan getting into a maroon truck, possibly with John Robinson's brother. It's Robin's belief that Marge was confused by the date, that she was referring to when Susan was kidnapped 10 months earlier by John Robinson from the Sports Center parking lot. I mean, think about it. Would Susan, who was already really afraid, would she really go with the brother who threatened to kill her and her family? But if it was true, why didn't they interview Bill Robinson? There was a note by Christie's statement saying that they would follow up. The presumption is that followed up means a detective would go interview Marge from the Blue Banjo and confirm that she'd seen Susan the night she disappeared getting into John Robinson's brother's vehicle. If they would have done that, maybe that breadcrumb would have led them to the sheriff's office and Susan's attack, and then maybe they would have gone and interviewed John's brother. But they never did. And John Robinson's brother died a year after Susan's disappearance.
1: I don't know if that wasn't given to them until after she went missing, but it wasn't applicable to this case at all. It has it was it had to do with when John Robinson picked her up. So it's the memory of another drug addict. And it came through hearsay from one woman who was the bartender at the Blue Banjo, told this other gal who was the street prostitute. And that woman, that street prostitute, went into the police station like a month later and said, this is what Marge at the Blue Banjo told me. And they took that and decided, well, that goes along with when um, another woman went missing in December 1990 from behind the sports center. So they decided, oh, well, we'll just clump those together so that their cases look like, OK, we might have, you know, serial killer guy here.
0: Remember, at that time, it was believed that there was an unknown serial killer in the area. A Yakima police report, dated March 23rd, 1995, stated that Susan and Julie were both prostituted women in the Yakima area. Neither had been seen or heard from since. Robin says at one time she seriously considered that Susan could have been murdered by a serial killer.
1: They never worked on the other woman's case, Julie and she went missing in December 1990 from behind the sports center. Never worked. Her case is even smaller than Susan's.
0: And is it still unsolved?
1: Yeah. I have her case file. It's, it's probably, I don't know, if, if it's 20 pages of stuff, it's nothing. They've never done anything.
0: And do they ever find her body? No. In 2019, Robin drove to Yakima. She currently lives in another state. And that's when she was able to speak with Jeanette for the first time and learned of the last foreboding conversation she'd had with Susan before she went missing.
1: She said Susan told her, I'm afraid to be out on the streets in the day. somebodys I feel like somebody's watching me, and I'm afraid they're watching for me.
0: Jeanette shared with me the circumstances leading up to the very last time that she saw Susan. Did she ever talk to you about being kidnapped and sexually assaulted. Yeah. Yes. And what did she say? She was
3: always afraid. Every time after we... Well, of course, you know, it intensifies the drug, it intensifies the, the paranoid feelings, you know, of bad things that happen in your life. And we would... Uh, she'd get on she'd say, I know they're going to get me. I know they're going to come back and get me.
0: They. She said they're going to come get me. Who do you think she was yeah, referring well, to? and that was the last time
3: I saw her, too. She said, they're following me. At first, you know, I thought, oh, okay, here we go.
0: Jeanette says the days leading up to Susan disappearing were days that she would never forget because Susan believed that she was being followed. I held on to guilt for a while because of that. Because you dismissed her? Yeah, I
3: just thought because of the drugs that she was imagining things, you know about what happened to her before just being scared because of what happened to her before or what they were going to do to her you know
0: so when she would say they're coming are testifying so when they when she would say before she disappeared before the the day that you last saw her Mm -hmm. who was she referring to
3: that's the thing i didn't know if she was referring to the guy that had Kidnapped her and held her, you know, for a long time and you know, held her hostage and all that. Or if she was talking about the person that took her.
0: I mean, it's interesting that she said they. Do you is? Yeah, uh,
3: they're watching me. They're they're following me. And so she even had me looking out the window, you know. And the person was the guy that she was with in the van that I saw. That was the only person that was outside.
0: But didn't him. but didn't she come with him? She did. And that guy in the van was Steve. And Jeanette says that the last time that she saw Susan, it was really different than any other time.
3: She knocked on the door. She was like, Jeanette, Jeanette, hurry up, open the door. And I opened up the door and she came in. She said, oh my God, they're, they're following me. And I said, they're following you. And she said, yeah. She goes, I'm really scared. This time I'm really scared. And I said, what's going on? And she said, I, I don't know, I think, I, I think they're going to get me. And I said, no one's going to get you. Because she has, she was with someone. I said, just go and go and hide, you know, go back where you were at. I just felt bad because I was like, like, go away. You know, that kind of thing. Like, kind of I didn't want to be bothered with having people, like if they were following her, or stuff that they would, you know, come to us.
0: Even though you knew that she, the drugs may have had an effect on paranoia, but you believed.
3: No, I believed her. She was, it was a whole different, kind of scared this last time. And I was like, hey, we can't have this here. You know, because she was scared. Yeah, I mean, looking out windows. <laughs> I was like, we can't have that here. You gotta go.
0: We don't know who Susan was afraid of. And we don't know the nature of Susan's relationship with Steve, but we do know that Susan felt isolated and alone. Was Susan staying with Steve in his van because it was a reprieve from the streets, or was there another reason?
1: From information
0: I've gotten about him, you know, he would buy the girls when he hung around,
1: other girls before Susan. You know, he'd buy them hamburgers, or he'd take them to the secondhand stores for some clothes or something like that. So yeah, so I mean, he was a source of protection to some degree, even though he was actively stalking her, even though she was with him, like, you know, and that's when he took some of those photos. She's clearly unaware in in a couple of those. So he was, um, there was an obsessiveness on his part, I believe. And I think the thought of her leaving to come back home would be a real threat to him because in in his mind, you know, um, it would mean he was not going to be a part of her life anymore.
0: According to Robin, Steve never contacted the family again after he called Susan's mom on April 23rd, 1994, and insisted that she take back Susan's belongings. Dolores said she told Steve, but she'll need them when she comes back, to which she says he replied, she's not coming back
1: when there was the uh, woman who uh, worked in one of the restaurants over there that Susan liked to go to. She was the manager there, and she told me Susan would come in and get coffee or something and sit in the front window. And she said there was always this man in his vehicle out front who would sit out there and watch Susan. It was two separate occasions that she remembered specifically, but each of those would come in and, you know, grab Susan up by the arm and call her a bitch and other things and, you know, kind of rough her up. So, you know, I made note of that because that speaks to his character, that he has the ability to be abusive
0: and possessive. As I mentioned earlier, I wasn't able to speak with the detective working the case for this podcast. But I was able to glean a few bits of insight from an interview a detective who was working Susan's case gave four years ago. In April 2018, Sergeant Bardwell from the Yakima Police Department gave an interview for a cold case spotlight for NBC News, where he said, On April 23, 1991, Susan went to the Sports Center Tavern in Yakima with friends. Sergeant Bardwell says a bartender would later tell police she saw Susan get into a Maroon truck that night. The bartender told police she recognized the truck as belonging to Bill Robinson, the brother of Susan's rapist. John Robinson. Sergeant Bardwell also was quoted as saying that police at the time did not interview Bill Robinson, John Robinson's brother, and there wasn't a reason given as to why. At that time, he confirmed that the man we are calling Steve had never been interviewed because they had tried to, but hadn't been able to make contact. In 2019, Robin made contact with Steve's sister, who lives in Yakima, and it was then that she was told that Steve had recently moved out of the state.
1: I found out where he was by looking him up. So I let my detective know, I call him my detective, but you know, it's my detective. And I said, is there any way you can go there and talk to him, interview him? Because I said, you know, the clock is ticking on this. And when he dies, you know as well as I do, we got nothing left. He's the key to this, I know he is. So he, you know, that's something he had to run up the pole to the guys at the top. They declined to send him and I, told kevin our, our detective i said i mean kevin i will pay for you to go everything and he said well you know you shouldn't have to though that's not how this is supposed to work and he was uh, he was angry that they wouldn't let him go because he knows the case now because he and i have talked in depth and he feels close to susan now so he cares and you can't impress upon other detectives in another state that same feeling if they're not familiar
0: Now, Detective Kays wasn't able to travel out of state to interview Steve, but he did reach out to the law enforcement agency where Steve now lives, and they went to see him at his residence for an interview. He didn't answer the door, but eventually they were able to get Steve on the phone. So we were not happy about that. Kevin was not happy about
1: that because you can't do a proper interview and you certainly can't do an interrogation
0: over the phone. You have to be in their face. Despite all of Robin's efforts... It was a dead end. Robin has asked me not to reach out to Steve for an interview for this podcast. Recently, she started a letter-writing campaign hoping to build a relationship with Steve. She wants him to speak with her about her sister's last days. So far, Steve hasn't responded to any of her letters. But a break in the case was just around the corner. After following up on a tip Steve's sister gave to her— Robin was able to find Steve's old van. Remember the one that he was living in with Susan?
1: The van... I located this last November, 2021, and it's information I'd given to the detectives, but they just haven't had the time, I guess, to sit down and go, yeah, let's call this place and this place and this place, because these are all pieces of information that I got from Steve's sister. Because I have the information, I'll make the calls. So I made the call. I didn't realize from the, t- that the time that this vehicle had been sold, I didn't realize it was so recent, it was 2019.
0: Incredibly, Steve's sister shares with Robin that before her brother left town, he sold the van to an auto body shop. Robin called the auto body shop and was able to track the van to a couple who had bought it.
1: Immediately called Kevin and left him a message, called his boss, who is the captain, lieutenant. I don't know what he is, Anyway, he's at the top, said, you gotta get over there. <laughs> you guys have got to go get this vehicle because it's just been sitting. They kind of hem-hawed about that and I got upset and I said, I can't believe that this is the reaction because I am ready to just get in my car right now and drive to Yakima and buy this vehicle from these people.
0: Detective Kays was able to get a forensic team out to the van, which included a cadaver dog.
1: The dog didn't hit on anything. They found the flyers that my mom made and gave to Steve to pass out they're still in the van. You know, 31 years later. Not passed out. Nope. And then something I had told people, and I've told people for years, and my family all knows this, that when Susan would bring you a little gift, especially during these years when she didn't have any money or anything, she would have, you know, like a Kleenex, and so she would get you a little trinket and just wrap it up in a Kleenex, or if she had a clean handkerchief, because she loved antique handkerchiefs, she would wrap it up in that and bring it to you. So... He called me the day they were out there. Kevin called and he said, "Well, I found some things. They were wrapped up in uh, tissue." He said, "I looked at them, and one of them is those little figurines." And I said, "Are these special moments or precious moments?" And he said, "Yeah." And then the other thing was the little, it's little glass hearts that are connected together. And I said, "Yeah, those were something Susan put there." I was just astounded, I'm still astounded by it because it's like, what are the odds that they're still there, that they didn't get thrown out with everything else, but that I even found this van at all. And there was also, and this is a weird thing, a picture of Susan I think I sent you that was in a frame and it was screwed into the wall of the vehicle.
0: Those items were returned to Robin recently. The box is still sitting unopened on her dresser. She hasn't had the heart to open it up. But Robin isn't giving up hope. And she wants Susan's legacy of getting a sexual predator off the streets to be remembered. John Robinson was set to be released in late December 1997 after serving his prison sentence. He was then civilly committed to McNeil Island, where the state of Washington detains people who are deemed sexually violent predators. Robinson was there until February 17, 2019, when he was released to a halfway house. And Robin, who believes that her sister's selfless act of coming forward to testify against Robinson saved lives, she didn't want her sacrifice to be for naught. Robin was convinced that Robinson would absolutely do it again to another woman if he was released. And Yakima reporter Tammy Ayer helped her get loud.
1: Yeah, when he was going, when John Robinson was going to be released on that LRA, I just wasn't having it. I just, and that's kind of the attitude I get. I just feel like If I don't say anything, I can't ever expect to get anything done. So I have to just use my voice. It's the only thing I have. So I contacted the uh, Attorney General office in Washington and spoke with the, um, the lead counsel there who were fighting to keep him in. And so Tammy wrote up, she wrote about that. And one of her colleagues covered his hearing before his release. So yeah, we've had a lot of We've talked a lot about it and done several articles. So she's been a huge, huge help.
0: A little more than two months later, Robinson was sent back to McNeil Island after violating the conditions of his release. He died in 2020. Robin says at this point, finding her sister is less about crime and punishment and more about recovering Susan's remains and giving her a proper burial.
1: In a perfect world, we'd have both. We'd have her remains, and we'd have justice. But it's been 31 years, and the idea of justice, I think, has come and gone. There was a time I wanted both of those, for sure. I was angry, I wanted to hang somebody for this. Now, we just want Susan back. We need to feel like she's with us, you know, in a real, tangible way, even though, you know, and I'll just be graphic. It'll be skeleton. We want her back Well, if that's all we get back, and we know that's all we'll get back. We, it just feels really important to have her back, to know where she is, have a place to visit, and we know that her remains are here. They're with us. Nobody can take her again.
0: If you have a tip, please contact the Yakima Police Department at 509-575-6200. And if you have a case you think we should cover, please reach out to me at the Chronicles at dot com. And thank you for listening. The Murder Chronicles is a Cavalry Audio production recorded live in the beautiful Pacific Northwest. We're produced by Brandon Morgan and myself. Our executive producers are Dana Brunetti and Keegan Rosenberger. Josh Windish edited and mixed this episode. Music by Soundstripe. For Cavalry Audio, I'm Carolyn Osorio, your writer and host. Thanks for listening.